Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Listeners, we're bringing you, I mean, I'm going to say a shorter episode, um, although if you look at the, you know, if you saw the the time on this episode, and it looks like a normal one, then never mind. I prepared <laughs> an appropriate amount. Uh, we've been very, very busy. We don't want to miss a week, but uh, we have been very <laughs> uh, strapped for time with our, our sort of library tour of mm-hmm. Connecticut and Massachusetts recently. Yeah, uh, so at least, you know, it's podcast related. Yeah, it is a it is our busy season for this stuff. So, um, yeah, we have been lucky enough to have a lot of interest in programs on aliens and ghosts uh, in this, especially around Halloween. So uh, we've been doing a lot of traveling, Carrie. We've been doing a lot of um, just telling spooky stories, mm-hmm. meeting people out on the out on the road, trying to, um, in some cases, explain what podcasts are and how, <laughs> how you can find them. If any of you found us, welcome. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And... Um, so I guess what I want to do this week is, this week we did a presentation on colonial ghost stories, and like all of our um, sort of live shows, Carrie, all oh of our gosh. all of our library presentations, to be more accurate, <laughs> yes. um, it is a combination of stories we've already told on the show and some uh, sort of new things that we researched just for this uh, presentation. So I wanted to give all of you fine people a little peek uh, at what you uh, could be seeing if you can make it out to uh, one of these library shows. I uh, I know people are listening from all over the world, but if you happen to be uh, near... You know that? <laughs> I do. I see the statistics. South Korea. <laughs> South. We, hear, we see you, South Korea. Yes. To all two of you in South Korea. Two Thank South you. Korean listeners. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, five English listeners. We love we love these people. Absolutely, they're probably not going to come see us at a public library, although though they're welcome. Um, but if you're a little closer, I mean, um, we we've had some listeners drive distances to come and see us, and it's felt great. The furthest I think that anyone's come to see us is uh, our listener Delaney came from Massachusetts to Connecticut. To come and see just one of our random weeknight library presentations, which was wild. Um, It was so nice. And she made us like Taylor Swift Eras Tour style little bracelets. Uh, One says titular and one says very titular. I'll let you guess. guess, I'll let you guess who (laughs) was wearing what. Um, I I have barely taken it off since I got it. It was so nice. We're both wearing them right now. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, we had uh, a listener bring us a movie of his at a recent uh, library presentation, which I think we mentioned before. We had our listener, Pete, bring some toys for Poe because he works at a, a, a pet supply store um, and came to one of the things. So you don't have to, like, bring us tribute every time, but, like, just knowing that, uh, just listeners knowing that we have a dog um, or knowing the whole titular thing is just crazy to us, and no, it's no, cool. Knowing that we love watching horror movies. I mean, yes, yeah, yes, making them too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's been really awesome meeting more of you, especially in the most wonderful time of the year. And hopefully, we can actually do some like 
I don't know, live recordings or sometime or something sometimes. So um, yeah, we don't, we don't always have to be at a library, but as two avowed nerds, uh, both of us basically grew up at libraries. So Accurate. it's been fun to bring the vibes there. Absolutely. And so what I want to do, Caroline, is give a, a little bit of this colonial ghost material that's been in some of our uh, recent presentations. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're nearby, come out and see us. And we would, uh, we'd love to give you a big old hug or a handshake, whatever you're comfortable with in these COVID <laughs> times. Um, I guess maybe a fist bump. Yeah, mm, maybe. One of those elbow things. Eskimo kisses? What are we doing? I think Eskimo kisses is about too as bad, much. <laughs> about as bad as you can do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, th- th- this is a little bit of what you can hear uh, in, in, in our live shows. Library presentations. So colonial ghosts, Carrie, and we're going to start with a uh, pre-revolutionary, well, I guess these are all colonial, right? It has to be pre-revolutionary or revolutionary. Sure. Um, but our listeners have already, or if they haven't, they can go back and hear us talk at length about uh, both cannibalism at Jamestown and the uh, Croatoan Roanoke disappearance. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, which are creepy stories from the origins of our country, pre-colonial ghost stories. Um, you can you can go listen to those episodes. There's too. also plenty of Salem witch trial stuff. Plenty of Salem witch trial stuff. That's another thing we talk about in this uh, show. But then, another pre-revolutionary ghost story, a ghost ship even, Ooh. is the so-called Palatine Light that can be seen racing by in green flames off the coast of Block Island. Oh, okay. Uh, which is off of Rhode Island, if anybody uh, yes. isn't from around here. <laughs> so yeah, Block Island wasn't always kind of the hip weekend summer vacation destination uh, that it is today. And in fact, there were uh, pretty strained relations between Block Islanders and mainlanders, apparently, uh, in, say, the 18th century when this story takes place. Why is that? Well, A, it was a place you kind of wanted to avoid anyway. Block Island is surrounded by uh, these super rocky shoals, sharp rocks that will um, puncture the bottom of any ship trying to come into port, uh, especially a big wooden ship like you'd be traveling in in, say, 1738. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a pretty dangerous place if you didn't know exactly what way you were supposed to be going a pretty dangerous place to try to dock anyway but mainlanders also had a pretty unfavorable opinion reputation I don't know of block islanders there were rumors that they were not only unfriendly but sometimes murderous to outsiders they Ooh. may even try to lure you ashore onto those rocky shoals with a false lighthouse or some other kind of trick and, uh, you know, kill you and take all your stuff. Classic false lighthouse. It is a... It, listen, it's not done as much anymore. No? <laughs> it used to be a classic pirate move. Okay. So uh, those shoals around Block Island became the graveyard of the Princess Augusta in 1738. Uh, she was a 220-ton English ship. And she had 240 German immigrants aboard who were headed for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It had already been a terrible trip before the shipwreck we're about to describe. Um, 
disease had killed, there were 240 passengers aboard, right? Mm -hmm. Disease had killed 200 of them or more. Mm. And half the crew, the 14-man crew, including Captain George Long, were also dead. Mm. And so the ship was now uh, in command of uh, the first mate, a guy named Andrew Brooke, who uh, didn't apparently do a great job because instead of ending up in Philadelphia, they ended up uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of Rhode Island. Yeah, that's not close. And the Augusta was damaged and leaking by the time it reached Block Island, where obviously it wrecked on the shoals. Mm -hmm. So as the ship began to sink, um, the account that's come down to us through history is that this Andrew Brooke, this first mate, jumped into all the lifeboats on board with his crew and rowed ashore, kind of calling to the remaining, the last surviving passengers, like, we'll come back for you guys, don't worry. And then just didn't make any effort to do so. And then apparently it was the Block Islanders, counter to their unfriendly, you know, murderous reputation from outsiders, who um, either launched a major rescue effort to help the people still aboard, or uh, just made Brooke uh, get his ass back out there and bring them. Well, I hope that he went down in history as like a miserable coward or whatever. What a horrible thing to do. I think he's mostly forgotten. Fair enough. Uh, He's he's usually name-checked when you read this story, but sometimes it's just as Brooke. So Mm -hmm. um, he's not like a famous sailor or or anything like that. No no hero mariner here. Well, certainly not. Um, And so the, the Black Islanders may also have buried one or two dozen of the deceased who were still aboard. Wow. Uh, It is said in some versions of the story that one woman was uh, left behind. Her name might have been Mary Vanderline, or that might have been made up somewhere along the line. Um, Left behind? Left behind, forgotten, or, depending on the story, driven mad by the um, suffering so far aboard the ship. Remember, this is... Journeys across the Atlantic in 1738 were terrible no matter what. Yeah. But this is one where you got lost, there wasn't enough food or water, the water got contaminated, everyone got sick, all of your family died. And so this Mary Vanderline apparently was just, um, you know, just kind of catatonic or otherwise crazed by her um, by her, her grief. Mm-hmm. Or else they just forgot her. <laughs> and so... Um, Mary Vanderline was supposedly, or whatever this woman's name was, uh, could supposedly be heard wailing as the ship went down, the last remaining person aboard. So do you hear her wailing if you see the ghost ship? That is part of the legend, Carrie. Um, so yes, fascinating. People do see a blazing green ghost ship blazing past Block Island. Um Often in the on the Saturday, so specific, often on the Saturday between Christmas and New Year's. Was that when it sank? No, it sank in August, I think. Hmm. So, weird. I've never heard of a haunting like that. Like, well... Like, maybe, you know, oh, he, he comes back every day on, on the anniversary of his death, or every year on the anniversary of his death. I've never heard of, like, a specific... I don't know, Saturday before New Year's is just crazy to me. Well, I might I might point out that like the Aurora is also seen more in the winter, right? And that's a green 
like effect in the sky. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a, if it's a similar visual effect that people are seeing, then hmm. could be. Mm-hmm. Isn't that usually after the new year? Or am I just... I don't know. I, Talking I, out of my head. I thought it was just cold, cold, like cold times of the year. I know the Aurora is usually in Norway because we want to go see it in like February-ish, yeah, March-ish. You got to be north above the Arctic Circle in a perfect world. Yeah. So I don't know. Would it be around in December? Maybe. I ain't a scientist. Yeah, I, I know. But if I know if you're in Scandinavia in the summer, you're not going to see it. Right. But in the dead of winter, uh, you got a better shot. Hmm. It's not after. It, I don't think it's after New Year's though, specifically. Okay. Because I've seen it in November. Ugh, lucky. Now the Princess Augusta wreck inspired, or maybe more accurately, was fictionalized in uh, a poem by this guy named John Greenleaf Whittier. Greenleaf. Called the Palatine. Um, the ship was. It's named the Palatine in the poem, but the poem's obviously referring to this incident. And at the time, in contemporary accounts, people refer to it as the Palatine ship mm-hmm. after the shipwreck because uh, all the people who died on the ship were from a region of Germany called the Palatine. Okay, fair enough. Just to just to catch you up on the on the name. Um, in the poem, the Palatine, the wicked residents of Block Island lure the hapless ship onto the rocks with a false lighthouse. Oh, no. So they can murder and rob the passengers and crew. Well, that's a hell of a way to thank people who stuck their necks out to try and save these people. Just like the old, just like the old story. Oh, well, that stinks. No wonder the Block Islanders didn't like other people. And that murderous version of the story does make a sort of ghost apparition make a lot more sense. Um, because Maybe. Of, I don't know. Because of the like horror of the... <laughs> Brooke just left them all to die, so it's not like that different. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to demonize the Block Islanders. Well, the poem, in any case, did bring the Princess Augusta wreck back into the public consciousness, if under the wrong name. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why it wasn't until the publication of that poem in 1867 that people started reporting seeing the Palatine Light. They never reported it before then? No. uh, Arguments about which way this uh, story went started about a week in, or started about a year uh, after the wreck. So then there were were already mainlanders saying um, the Block Islanders had lured the hapless ship onto the rocks and block islanders saying no we heroically defended uh oh. the, the people mm-hmm. um so that those stories split a year after the wreck but it wasn't until um 1860 i've never seen accounts before 1867 of the ghost ship okay uh, when the ghost ship is seen it is sometimes accompanied by the wailing of a lone woman perhaps that poor poor mary vanderline mm. and again uh, if you want to go try to see this thing, I guess, uh, apparently it's the Saturday between Christmas and New Year's. So there you go. So weird. That's the Palatine Light, Caroline. What do you think of that? Well, we love a ghost ship, though we don't love these circumstances. Correct. Uh, and listener, if you're a new listener, and I hope you are, we... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we hope you're you're listening at whatever time is good for you. 
we did a whole episode, a whole two episodes on ghost ships. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I encourage you to go back and check that out. I think it's a lot of really creepy stories and some very sad ones. Yay. I think we saved the Tenmouth Electron for Patreon. That's a real bummer. Yeah. Talk about the hubris of man. Um, oh, yeah. that. Oh, what was that guy's name? I forget, but the, he was made of hubris, the Tenmouth Electron guy. Yeah. Very sad. Look it up. <laughs> Or don't. If you Look don't, up something happy. Yeah, I mean, you could subscribe on <laughs> Patreon. You could come hear us tell you about yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's a good middle ground. Um, Carrie, I'm starting to think we're going to be fine on normal episode time at this point, actually. Uh, let's move along to Ghosts of the Revolution. Ooh. Um, and it makes sense that there's a lot of Revolutionary War ghost stories, right? It's it's arguably the most important event in the history of our country because it's when it started. Uh, certainly one of them. And we know from our Gettysburg Ghosts episode that battlefields and wars, especially fought on your own land, are always going to be, I guess, magnets for spirit activity, if you believe in that, of course, Sean. Well, they create a lot of ghosts because a lot of people die. <laughs> Great way to look at it. And um, in the seven years of the revolution, there's also this kind of huge emotional upheaval overturning as as people shift their allegiance from one uh, country to a totally made up new one. Or don't. I mean, when it came to the Civil War, we had brother fighting against brother, North, North versus South. And there was some of that in the revolution because not only were people fighting, you know, British soldiers from overseas, there were also loyalists fighting rebels and all that. And like, you know, the colonists trying to establish America versus the people that just wanted to kind of keep the status quo. So there's a lot of like, you might be fighting your neighbor at certain times. And that's certainly always going to be fraught emotionally. Yeah, 100%. Um, Now, much of the early violence of the revolution took place in and around New York City, including brutal fighting along the East River. And for a little more on that, we've got Horrors of the American Revolution that we just came out with this summer. I truly thought you were going to say, for more on that, check out Act One of Hamilton. (laughs) Also that. Uh, Well, more than 6,000 Patriot uh, soldiers and militiamen would ultimately die fighting the British. As many as twice that number, Carrie, might have died in the awful conditions aboard British prison ships. And many of those were anchored right along the East River, uh, which in certain stretches can feel like a prison today. (laughs) So you're saying that a ship in the 1700s is probably one of the worst places to be, but somehow a prison ship in the 1700s could be even worse. Uh, It definitely was worse. Mm. I mean, that Princess Augusta situation is a special situation, but... This this is way worse than most uh, uh, 1700s pleasure cruises. Mm-hmm. Prisoners would be crowded together in dark, dank ship holds. They would be drinking river water that just kind of leaked through the side of the ship. Oh, God. And they were continuously ravaged by lice, mice, and infectious diseases that obviously, just like the Princess Augusta, would spread like wildfire because everyone's just just kind of pissing and shitting where they are. There's no other way to say it. 
Right. And the East River isn't even the East River at this time. You know, it's not like a polluted wasteland. No, they made it that way. Well, they certainly helped. Uh, when a man died in these conditions and that, you know, it happened, obviously. I'm sure, yeah. He would generally just be, he would generally just be tipped overboard. God. Um, so for many years after the war, decades, bleached bones would wash up frequently on the Brooklyn side of the East River. Like way more than you would uh, think. That's very ghoulish. And many of those bones... You love beachcombing, by the way, Carrie. What a nice surprise that would be. I've only ever found a few bones, and they're certainly animal. Um, I couldn't imagine coming across like a, a huge shin bone or something. A POW's jaw. Oh, God. Those poor, poor people. Many of their bones are now... Many of the ones that washed up on the banks of the river over the years are now interred at the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument which you can go to at Fort Green Park in Brooklyn. That sounds intense. It's a big old tower. It's If you go to Fort Green Park, you can't miss it. It's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. Connecticut's uh, Robert Sheffield said this of his imprisonment. Bobby Sheffs? Oh, yeah. You know Bobby. <laughs> the heat was so intense that the hot sun shining all day on deck, they were all naked, which also served the well to get rid of vermin, but the sick were eaten up alive. Mm. Their sickly countenances and ghastly looks were truly horrible. Some swearing and blaspheming, others crying, praying and wringing their hands and stalking about like ghosts. Others, delirious, raving and storming, all panting for breath, some dead and corrupting. Oh, what a... <laughs> just what a visceral way to put that. The air was so foul that at times a lamp could not be kept burning. By reason That's of which, a thing? By reason of which the bodies were not missed until they had been dead ten days. Oh God! And you're just all all in with that. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, because there's not enough oxygen. What that means that you can't keep a candle lit is there's not enough oxygen in the air to feed the fire because so much of the air is like methane and other human like body stink. gases. Oh my God! Oh, oh, Jesus! That actually made me nauseous. Yeah, it's really fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the British abandoned and burned the ship during their uh, flight from New York at the end of the war. And it would lay there at the bottom of the river until it was accidentally turned up by laborers who were building the Brooklyn Navy shipyard in 1902. Mm -hmm. And crew's tools actually punctured the hull of this ship they didn't know was down there. Hmm. And so maybe they disturbed the dead, but ever since, people taking an evening stroll along the East River have occasionally reported... <laughs> casual East River evening stroll. Now listen, there's not that many places to... to... Never mind. I was going to say there's not that many places to see water in New York, but it's, it's an island. <laughs> um, but taking an evening stroll by the East River, people do report desperate whispers mm. as they get close to that Navy shipyard. Now, by the time the revolution began, Carrie, Boston was under full occupation, military, uh, martial law by the British Army. Mm -hmm. And British soldiers were apparently known to use the monuments and the headstones in Copps Hill Cemetery in Boston for target practice. Okay. 
It's like the Patriot. Like, they're just kind of swanning around with their prison ships, shooting up tombstones. Like, impossibly cartoonishly evil sort of mustache. They're all Jason Isaacs. Hmm, a monument to your dead loved one. Hmm? Yeah. Like, okay, we get it. You're British. (laughs) Um, There's a dented weather vane on the top of the First Congregational Church of Stratford that... um, town legend is that that redcoats used that for target practice i don't know if it's true or not oh i I never knew that now the disrespect those redcoats showed to those headstones in cops hill cemetery may be part of the reason why it is similar to our own union cemetery in easton carry it is often cited as one of the most haunted cemeteries in the country Mm. And there are superstitious Bostonians who avoid the site. There are superstitious Bostonians? Hey, I'm fucking scared over here. Nope, that's New York. (laughs) I'm fucking scared. I'm fucking, I'm so fucking scared over here. (laughs) Very nice. I just want to remind you of the curse of the Bambino. It's a good time. In this case, the curse of the Bambino is fucking... (laughs) Um, Cops Hill is, yeah, it's known as one of the most haunted cemeteries in the country, and people report hearing muffled cries or strange groans as they walk past the stones. Uh, where's the Duncan? Or even see strange lights or shadowy figures moving around inside after dark. Carrie, I'll remind you, we have a lot of listeners in Massachusetts. (laughs) I was going to say, it's just Ben Affleck. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My family's from the Bronx. It's all in love. Well, we're staying. I married Sean after all. It's like one of those, you know, royal alliances between France and England or whatever. It's mutually assured destruction. (laughs) I'm also not from Massachusetts. Your family is, and you're all Red Sox fans. It's the same thing. All right, you hear that, Massachusetts listeners? I am your champion. (laughs) You know I love Massachusetts. And those Massachusetts listeners can also find some ghosts at Concord's Colonial Inn, as I'm sure they know and have heard ad nauseum at at this point. But (laughs) for the rest of you... um, the Colonial Inn had a front row seat for the skirmish that filled over from nearby Lexington to kick off the bloody violence of the Revolution. It was first built in 1716, but the inn would become a stockpile for weapons and ammo for the colonial forces, the militia, definitely the militia and maybe the regular colonial army during the early phases of the war, as well as a makeshift hospital carry for the injured and dying, both in that first initial skirmish and at times throughout the war. You can imagine really intense emotions. We've, we've talked about this in, say, our Gettysburg episode. Mm-hmm. But an early modern battlefield is a really horrible place. And uh, if you get injured in a limb, they, they, there's a good chance they're just someone's just going to be sawing that thing off. And that's what a hospital is. You're going is. in raw. You're, you're getting maybe... Well, it's certainly in the revolutionary era, you're getting like some alcohol, uh-huh. but they don't really even have like laudanum or anything, right? Nope. So. Just ugh. a lot of screams, a lot of biting belts, I think. God. Um, so you can imagine that all that energy would leave an impression behind. It's said that you can stay in room 24 
which is the former hospital. It's where they actually were sawing these guys' legs off on tables and stuff. How romantic. Uh, and that's where the best chances of sort of paranormal activity are. And guests report lights and TVs flickering on and off, hearing voices, obviously, always, and uh, seeing orbs. Now, just a shout out to any haunted hotels, inns, motels, Airbnbs, B&Bs, etc. If you're listening, we're totally down to come and do like a live episode from your most haunted room. Um, 1408 styles until we go completely insane. And then won't that make a great episode? Oh, can we? I don't know. Hotels, B&Bs, Airbnbs, etc. Get at us. The Colonial Inn is also home to Rosemary, a misty white translucent woman who's been seen gliding down hallways and hovering around rooms. Uh, Rosemary's believed to be a nurse who maybe sought to the wounded during the war in in room 24, perhaps. Mm. And while the violence of those early skirmishes and later battles would claim a lot of lives in the revolution, um, a lot of people just died from infection or hunger or in some cases the cold because there were some really bad winter encampments for washington's army and uh one of the most famous bad winters in history has to be the one that the colonial the continental army boys uh, settled down for at valley forge well we talked a lot about that in horrors of the american revolution yes we did where uh, of course 2000 americans just to remind you would die of disease alone in in that winter mm-hmm. with more succumbing to malnutrition or just straight up frostbite all over mm-hmm. there's famous stories uh, that you've heard before from us uh, perhaps of uh, men boiling and eating their shoe leather catching uh, rats to eat Now, let's talk about the ghosts of Valley Forge, not starting right after the revolution, but starting in the late 1800s when the Victorians started being really fascinated with uh, paranormal stuff. Victorians, you gotta love them. They loved spiritualism. And uh, right around the time that the mediums were setting up crystal balls in people's drawing rooms all over England and America, people started reporting ghostly campfires and veiled orbs hovering around the site of the old Valley Forge camp. I would have had so much fun in the spiritualism era. I know you would have. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to vote, but... That's more fun in a way. (laughs) Says the uh, 30-something white man. (laughs) Have you ever not had the ability to vote? No, but I've gotten no joy out of uh, following politics. Oh, boo-hoo. Now, the interesting thing with those Valley Forge ghosts, sometimes people would report seeing uh, groups of men huddled around what they assumed were mass graves. And then when it was reported that bones had been found at the site, it was like, oh, my God, there really were mass graves. So you make connections between those stories. It was a really cool time for, like, uh, amateur ghost hunters and ghost theorists. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it turned out that their historical records indicate there probably weren't any mass graves at Valley Forge. And the bones that have been found are all from pigs, chickens, and cows. Um, But maybe it's their ghosts that haunt the site. Can you imagine a chicken ghost? Yeah, it's it's probably a translucent chicken. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a crazy thought. Now, two years after Valley Forge, the Jockey Hollow encampment in North Jersey for winter 1779 was way worse, apparently. There were 28 separate snowstorms. 
dropping 15-foot drifts on the uh, army. Jesus, 28. That's like some alive shit, some like Uruguayan uh, rugby team stuff. Yeah. You can visit the site at the Morristown National Historical Park, and visitors and hikers report ghostly crap almost more than at Valley Forge over there. <laughs> hey, there's ghostly crap here. Hey, look at all this ghostly crap. <laughs> People hear snatches of fife and drum music, and then they'll turn to see where it's coming from and see a glimpse of colonial soldiers. How cool would this be? A glimpse of colonial soldiers or uh, Ed Warren-style shadow figures marching through the trees. Pretty dope. It's uh, I, nice of them to you know not give up the ceremony. Stand on ceremony and, and give us the fife and drum if you're going to be marching up the hill. Fife and life, fife and death, baby. There's also a translucent white lady carrying a lantern who shows up there sometimes because, like, you're kind of not a haunted site if you don't have a translucent white lady from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about the Headless Horseman of Washington Irving <laughs> and also the Headless Horseman of Canton, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But there's yet another Headless Horseman that predates Irving's, uh, you know, wild ride with the pumpkin. Okay, and what's that one? Uh, well, this relates to one of the underrated badasses of the revolution, General Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. By the way, one of uh, Francis Marion's great-great-granddaughters. Um, great, 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 great. Great, 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 great. Oh, yeah, she would have. <laughs> it she, was yes. very great. <laughs> yes, it, it's a lot of greats. That was not enough greats. Um, came to one of our recent uh, presentations, and yeah. and wasn't that nice? And and uh, she. She, she is apparently an orb magnet when it comes to like going on ghost tours and stuff um, in revolutionary related places. So maybe maybe the spirits uh, recognize her DNA as being of Francis Marion's. Maybe that's because Marion was a, uh, uh, you know, a war hero. He's a big ghost generator, uh, as we may <laughs> see in this story. Now, he's the guy that Mel Gibson in The Patriot is based on? Yes. He uh, he was famous for his kind of hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, uh, which he used to cause all kinds of headaches to General Cornwallis down in the South Theater of the War. So one night, Francis Marion launched a typical daring rescue of uh, a few of his men had been captured by the British. But uh, he heard from, I, I guess he had a servant girl in the British, in one of the plantations, mm -hmm. who was... Um, a spy? A spy. That's the <laughs> word, yes. And she told him there was going to be a party at a nearby plantation, and that all the British officers were going to go, and it was going to be really lightly guarded uh, where his men were. So, perfect place to, to plan the attack. And when they showed up, just a lone sentry was <laughs> left behind guarding the prisoners it's so typical like everyone who's anyone is going to this party so just leave one guy behind because we all want to go and that guy's like oh i'm you sure you don't need me at that party guys uh, i have a feeling i'm gonna feel bad for this guy because he's already down and, and out oh it's gonna get worse for this guy yeah Aww. um marion's gorillas snuck up and apparently you know, in the story, they sliced this guy's head off mm. before he even knew what was happening. Just, here's a cavalry saber, boop. Well, at least there's that. And um, that was it. They saved their guys and they got out of there. But the following night, at the nearby plantation, where the party had been, that the British officers had all gone to the night before, a servant reported seeing a headless man stagger up the driveway 
blood spurting from his wound um, before falling down and then vanishing. Well, that's horrific. Or sorry, he didn't vanish. The servant vanished. The servant panicked and fled. <laughs> and um, it, we, when people came to check, there was nothing there. How silly do you think the British guys felt coming back? And they're all kind of drunk from this party. And then they just see this headless guy and none of the prisoners. There's a lot of egg on their face at that point. It's a little awkward. Fuck. I can't believe he done this. <laughs> Oof. Okay. I, I mean, I feel bad for this guy because he was probably just an underling. He didn't even get an invite to the party. Well, this is not the last time he would show up, though. A few nights later, after that first sighting, the daughter of the plantation owner heard hoofbeats, looked out her window, and saw a man with no head riding up and then climbing off his horse. This is pretty wild because you don't, Often, if ever, hear ghost stories that are so immediate after. Exactly. Like the night after is crazy. The man vanished, and ever since, this headless sentry is occasionally reported to this day in the vicinity of Wedgefield Plantation, which you can visit in South Carolina. Wow. And um, So there's a ghost horse, or was a ghost riding a live horse? That's a great question. It didn't... The- Did they kill the horse? They didn't, in, no, I don't think Francis Marion would, would have killed the horse. Maybe they stole the horse. You'd probably want to steal the horse. So yeah, how how is he riding? Is it a real horse or is it a ghost horse? And if so, where do you get the ghost horse from? Is it kind of like grandfathered in from the afterlife or well, to kind of like complete your whole bit? Yeah, I feel like if you're a ghost, you have a little freedom to, com- yes, you've used the perfect terminology, complete <laughs> your bit, of course. Um, and maybe you can form some of your ectoplasm into a horse. Hmm. I'll have to give it a shot. That's what I'm going with. (laughs) Um, But doesn't it seem hard to imagine that Washington Irving didn't hear of either this or the Headless Horseman of Canton or both? Because they were pretty popular stories to pass around at the time. And both of them are related to the Revolutionary War specifically. So... And he was like a amateur historian. He was like an obsessive collector of stories. Listen, especially back in the day before copyright law and all that, you know, people based things very directly on other things. And, you know, Shakespeare, half of his plays are like based on earlier plays that had already been written. So, um, you know, it wasn't as big of a thing back then. And if you're writing in that sort of American folktale theater, you're going to incorporate some real American mythology in there. Yeah, Irving's a hack. You heard it here first. Whoa! We're going to come back in the second part of this episode with uh, some stories of Revolutionary War heroes who have returned to us from beyond the grave. I think you can guess at least one of the names we're going to be talking about. I'm still shook about Washington Irving. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. 
a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. We are back, Carrie. In the first half of this show, we uh, covered a few, well, I guess one sort of pre-revolution story, and then we've been talking about revolutionary ghost stories for the most part. Mm-hmm. And before the break, I uh, teased stories of Revolutionary War heroes who have come back to us from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. And it seems remiss to start any place except with the pride of Mount Vernon himself, George Washington. G-Wash. Old G-Wash. You can't have a discussion about colonial ghosts without sparing a few minutes for the father of our country. He uh, is probably the most seen ghost, maybe besides Lincoln. He's very prolific. He gets around in the afterlife, for sure. And he's all over the place, too. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, Washington was the biggest hero of the new nation when the war ended in 1738. Um he famously, you know, could have been a king, basically, but returned to his farm instead, wanted to settle down quietly, and then uh, was gracefully pulled back into public service and uh, uh, served his country as, as president, then decided to voluntarily step down. He's the picture of humble wisdom and restraint, but also bold, decisive action when needed. Um, and he was basically a supernatural, saintly figure in the eyes of Americans by the time he died. Mm-hmm. So it's like zero surprise that Americans immediately started seeing George Washington's ghost. Sure. It's like seeing Elvis at the gas station. Uh, that's right. And uh, he, 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 uh, notably, he showed up a few times to support troops during the Civil War. Union troops, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, twice within a week, I think. <laughs> Listen, he had he had a to-do list, he had places to be, he had hit a few different locations. Uh, Washington was reported to show up to lend his leadership and moral support, I guess, to Union troops during the 1863 draft riots in Manhattan. This is a, I mean, there's a whole, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. It was a major, major insane period of rioting and looting in New York um, in reaction to the draft at the beginning of the war. And uh, apparently the editors of the New York Times were defending their offices with two Gatling guns. This is like halfway into the war, right? Yeah, but there were new levies to refill the Union Army. Ah, I see. And uh, Union soldiers were pinned down by demonstrators on Broadway and Duane Street when they supposedly turned to see George Washington dressed in the Army of the Revolution and yelling, fix bayonets, charge! So you're saying George Washington backs the blue? Yeah, I mean, then they then they then charged down the hill toward the protesters and repelled them. Okay. Um, but there were some there were some real bad apples in those those streets. Carrie, it was a, the, the, again the New York Times, the New York <laughs> the reporters are using Gatling guns. You know, you know, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's like you, like I can't imagine that. Defending Ah! the offices of News 12. (laughs) Just two weeks before the draft riots, Washington had also reportedly been seen near the battlefield at Gettysburg. His ghost must be exhausted. 
Um, the 20th main division, you'll remember them, Carrie, as Jeff Daniels guys in the movie Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. They uh, were actually running late on the way to the battle. It's like you and me getting to anything. And they were confused. Wow. And they were confused at a fork in the... Well, except our, our library presentations, by the way, and live events. Very professional. The men were afraid they were going to be late to the battle, and they were confused at a fork in the road when they turned and saw a tall, imposing figure wearing a tricorner hat and what appeared to be a Revolutionary War uniform. And he said, when you see a fork in the road, take it. He said, sure, he said exactly that. And uh, he pointed them down the correct road and I guess led them to Little Round Top. Hmm. The hill where they would famously heroically repel the Confederate assault under, again, the command of Jeff Daniels. (laughs) Well, Joshua Chamberlain. But did he or like who... Who spread this story? Uh, Chamberlain didn't see this himself. Just some of his men told him about it. But he was asked about it later. And I have a quote from him. Uh, He said, (laughs) We know know not what mystic power may be possessed by those who are now bivouacking with the dead. (laughs) I only know the effect. But I dare not explain or deny the cause. Because he's saying this after they won the battle, of course. Mm -hmm. Who shall say that Washington was not among the number of those who aided the country that he founded? So he gives a real, sure, why not? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Carrie Washington is also reported to haunt Mount Vernon, his 8,000-acre estate in Virginia, which uh, is open for tours to this day. And that's probably the place people most often report seeing our old friend George, which makes sense. Washington lived there, and he died there in bed on December 14th, 1799. And that same old four-poster bed is still sitting in his room all these years later. Let's hope they changed the mattress. I'm not sure, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, lucky souls, and I typed a question mark next to the word lucky, (laughs) but but, uh, honestly, the lucky souls who have had the... Lucky souls? No, but really, like I would love to, you wouldn't love to spend a night in George Washington's bed? I hope they haven't changed the mattress. Sure, but I'm a freak. They, uh, people say it's hard to get to sleep in this bed. Yeah, because it's like Christmas morning. You're so excited you're in George Washington's bed. Well, they say they feel the presence of our first president hanging around. Have they been fucking this ghost? Yeah, I... I'm assuming at least I, I, I I'm, I'm guessing some erotic dreams have been had. Mm-hmm. Candles, in addition to the dreams, candles have been reported blowing out. Oh yeah, he's like, come here, baby. And people hear whispering voices or the rattling of an old cavalry saber while they're sleeping in the room. You're super sexy. I cannot tell a lie. Stop being horny for George. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. Now, uh, Josh, now Josiah Quincy III, uh, who is a former mayor of Boston, former president of Harvard, and a congressman. He's the guy who Quincy Market in Boston is named after. So mm. he's a big deal. Mm-hmm. He confided to his son. We have this from his son's like memoirs. And he only says that his dad says that he saw Washington's ghost. And specifically says, I can't say anymore. I want to check with... Uh, experts in delusions, like brain delusions. <laughs> well, or maybe he was like, 
I don't know what I saw, but I know I had some very erotic dreams. Well, Quincy, he didn't say there were erotic dreams. So <laughs> I want to be clear. Um, but he apparently saw Washington's ghost in full person when he stayed in that bed in 1806. Mm. Washington's also felt in the stables. Much more recently, a security guard who worked at Mount Vernon through the 80s and 90s said that many times the stable alarm would go off. He would go check it. There would be no one there. And then just a couple of minutes later, the alarm in Washington's bedroom would sound. And it would be about the amount of time it would take to kind of casually stroll from one to the other. But obviously in both places, there'd be no one there. Yeah, and you get to the room and there's like a ghost George Washington kicked back on the bed. And he's like, ring, 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 ring. Okay, so horny George is a character now. <laughs> yes. Ring-a-ding-ding. Ring-a-ding-ding. Scooby-dooby-doo. He's a crooner? <laughs> Strangers in the night. Soldiers in the night, in his case. Okay. Uh, <laughs> employees have also reported a ghostly touch, kind of a firm, oh boy. <laughs> kind of a firm, comforting presence on the shoulders. Mm. Just on the shoulders. Okay, I said, mm. While hanging around the so-called yellow room. Um, and the other night someone asked, what's the yellow room? <laughs> well, this is a kid. <laughs> yeah. But it's but it's a good it's a valid question. Yeah, it's a room that's yellow. It's a room that's yellow. That's uh, I I wish there was more to it, but that's that's. It all wasn't like is. the bedroom of a yellow-bellied bastard or something. Right uh, now, George Washington's not the only Revolutionary War hero, not the only Revolutionary War general that people report seeing as a ghost after his death. The lesser-known hero, Mad Anthony Wayne, uh, didn't have the pleasure of dying in bed. He succumbed to gout on a trip home from a military posting in Detroit in 1896. Ugh, succumbing to gout just sounds terrible. It's the disease of kings. Okay, <laughs> so it's inbreeding. Uh, Wayne was known for his bold, aggressive, quote-unquote, mad tactics in battle, uh, hence the name Mad Anthony Wayne. Uh, he, he loved a bayonet charge, you know, why shoot when a bayonet charge will do, Anthony mm. uh, Wayne would say. That's not a direct quote. <laughs> After he died on the road, his men buried him near where he died. It was near a fort not far from Erie, Pennsylvania. But Wayne's family wanted him returned to the family plot at home. And 13 years later, his son came to get him. It's a good son. So he dug up dad. And even though 13 years had passed, he found the body... Curiously undecomposed. He was, I guess, expecting, maybe even hoping for, but certainly expecting a skeleton. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of what he was prepared to transport back. But he was still chunky. He was still a full connected body. That's crazy. It is. And so what he had to do was find some locals to help him saw his father up. Did he have to do this? Put him in a big old pot. And boil him down until he was nothing but bones. I don't think he had to do this. Well, he, he, listen, if you've got like a foot locker and you need to stuff your dad inside of Get it. Get a bigger coffin? <laughs> Instead of boiling and chopping up your dad like he's a bunch of old vegetables to make soup? Oh, sorry, Carrie, you're right. It didn't work. Oh, wait. Okay, keep going with the story. Where does the ghost come in, hmm? Okay. Okay, you've got a point there. Legend does have it that he 
Wayne's son, that is, didn't secure the box maybe super well. Mm-hmm. And by the time he got home, yes, a few of his dad's bones had bounced out along the way. So you lost a few Lucy's. A few loose bones left Imagine along the being side. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, you get there and you're like, ooh, I, yikes. Well, it probably only after happens after some counting. You know what I mean? Unless it's like no, unless like there's unless like half like a, a leg hanging off of a out of like a hole. Unless it's a shin or yeah. like a like a skull that you're missing, uh, you might have to count those things up. You're going two o one, two o two, two o three. A whole foot that just kind of clattered out there. You're getting a lot of little toe bones that are just I've only got scattered behind you like breadcrumbs. I've only got two hundred and three. That can't be right. Count them again. <laughs> We're missing a phalange somewhere. Mm. Um, so it is, I, I think this is really funny and also more than a little sad that supposedly General Wayne is seen from time to time wandering on the shoulder of U.S. Route 322 in Pennsylvania, um, which is the route that his son took home, searching forlornly for his lost bones. That's, that's a big uh, oopsie-daisy on the son's part, you know? He's probably like a messy kind of forgetful guy in life. And then in death, you you lose a bunch of your dad's bones and he becomes a lumbering ghost bound to the world forever. It's, it's a big... There but for the grace of God go I. Oh, we're not there yet. <laughs> Who knows? You still have time. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. No news this week. We just want to wish everyone a lovely, safe, and spooktacular Halloween. Boo. Boo. <laughs> uh, we'll certainly have one. Uh, as I as I told you, listener, Carrie's been stocking up on king-size <laughs> candy bars. We're going to be the best house on the block. Yeah, yeah. We have some... Some outdoor decorations, certainly indoor decorations. No, we do not have the 12-foot skeleton. I wish we had the 12-foot skeleton. We have an HOA instead. Yeah, it, our house is weird. But um, we're really excited for our first house Halloween, excited for trick-or-treaters, and excited for our first Halloween party at our new house, which is going to function as a housewarming for a lot of our friends who haven't seen it since either we first moved in and, you know, we've done a lot of projects since then or at all. Uh, you've set the bar pretty high in past years, Carrie. Uh, wh- what are some of the highlights of the Halloween party traditionally? Well, I mean, the big the biggie there is we have a costume contest every year. So that is... Um, 
you're going to have an overall winner, of course, and there could be, you could win multiple things. Uh, there's male and female. Now, these are just uh, presenting costumes. So if a guy was in drag or something, he could win um, best female. Then there's sex. I didn't realize that, actually. Yes, yes. We just really haven't had that. If a, if a man who identified as a man came in drag, I would vote for him for and it was great. I would vote for him for best male costume. No, it's a, it's the same thing as if a man who identifies as a man dresses as a woman on Drag Race that you call you refer to the drag queen as she. I'm gonna have to think about this hard. <laughs> okay, well, it's literally never been a factor at our parties, but um, we have those. We have sexiest, funniest, scariest, uh, and best couple. And everyone gets a little prize. Who wins those? Everyone votes. Um, we have a trivia contest. We have pumpkin pong. So this is our beer pong tournament where you get, you can all possibly win the golden pumpkin trophy, which I hand paint every year. Um, let's see. We have. Oh, we, we have enough space this year that we might have a secondary table for filthy casuals who don't like the pressure of the competition. Of course. Of course. Um, we have a whole variety of themed foods and drinks and shots. I always have some jello shots, some pudding shots, some syringe shots. Um, and there's uh, plenty of options for our non drinking friends as well. You rattled those off like they were normal types of shots, jello oh, shots, people know. I, I always, <laughs> so pudding shots or basically jello shots, but pudding. Pumpkin pudding. Yes. And the syringe shots are in those big plastic shot syringes, and they're but usually like a more liquid liquidy version of a jello shot and i like to go around with my little tray and i hand them out everyone gets very happy um let's see there's music i just have a lot of fun uh it's a very stressful time because i i really want everyone to have a great time but everyone seems to really enjoy themselves and that's kind of the reason for the season for me it's it's a time where everyone can get together and be spooky and have fun and um there's not any other kind of element to it. Like Christmas kind of has a lot of family stuff going on. There's possibly religious elements and the gifts and, and all that stuff. But Halloween, you know, it, and I love Christmas, but Halloween is kind of there just for the fun of it to me. Well, it might change when we have kids, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Well, then that's going to be like, a, oh, now we have to bring them to trunk or treat. Now they want to blah, 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 blah. But that'll just be a, a new fun thing to enjoy. But anyway... I'm looking forward to it all. I'm really excited. I hope we have a nice uh, Halloween where it's not like a blizzard like some years or sweltering hot like others. You never know with Connecticut Halloweens. But um, yeah, I hope everyone else's week is spooky and fun. And you get some leaf peeping in. I think we're hitting peak leaf over here in Connecticut. Yeah, we uh, we went to Vermont during peak, and then we brought it back with us. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. You're welcome, East Coast. Um, so yeah, I hope everyone has a great Halloween time. We'll be back just after Halloween. I think, what, the 2nd of November is our next episode. And, you know, I might come back sounding decidedly less chipper. I think our first post-Halloween episode was The Real Candyman, where I was talking uh, after being so sad that Halloween was over. So, yeah, I may be in a period of mourning when you hear me next. Yeah, you get seasonal affective disorder, but starting November 1st. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, sad, but it's spooky affective disorder. <laughs> so, 
I hope everyone has a wonderful, wonderful time. It's been a blast getting to meet some of you and meet more of you over our presentation period. And um, yeah, can't wait to see what happens next with the podcast. I have a feeling it'll involve um, all of you. <laughs> so thanks. Hopefully listening at the very least. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. Don't forget to share your favorite moments of the last 50 or so episodes with us, either via email at ain'titscary.com at gmail.com, any of the social medias I just mentioned, or you can call and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. We might share your favorite clip from the last 50 episodes on a compilation show to come up shortly. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already members of our podcast Little Patreon family, our little spooky <laughs> family over here. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, and Ira. We love you all very much. Everyone I just mentioned by name is absolutely invited to our Halloween party if you can make it. <laughs> and uh, thanks, Alex, for sharing a very interesting article with us on Twitter. Some stories possibly uh, that we'll X, be covering Carrie, on x please. <laughs> um yeah we love when you guys share perspective stories with us things that you'd like us to cover so go for that and um we'd love to see it see you next thursday show created by sean and carrie mckay music by kyle ryan you can find kyle at his youtube channel music is a verb ain't it scary has been brought to you by killer podcasts and is a production of Longboy media <laughs> I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.